All right. Let's take a look at this uh, stanza. I think it will encourage us tonight. Uh, Let's look again at verse uh, 81 and 82 to start with. And you'll notice that David uses the word longs a couple of times. And right out of the gate then you realize what this section's about. It's about how sometimes as Christians, oftentimes as Christians, we are in the position of waiting or longing for what God has promised but hasn't yet given. That's what David is wrestling with. Now, think about it. How good are you at waiting in other areas of your life? How easy does it come to you? Uh, this past week, I uh, took my son, Asher, to get his driving, uh, driving permit. Uh, so he started driving this week. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You should congratulate him. He's, he's only got his learner, so he's got to have a, an adult with him. So if you see him go, riding around on his own, tell me. He's not supposed to be. Well, I, we made the appointment a long time ago with the DMV. We've been waiting actually for a while. And it's been a while since I've been in the DMV. You don't go there often, right? And so I didn't realize that even when you have an appointment these days, it's really just an appointment to get a ticket and wait. Right? It's not an appointment like, hey, your appointment's at 5.30, therefore you're going to get seen at 5.30. It's an appointment to go at 5.30, get in line, get a ticket, and wait. (laughs) Interesting, right? Well, I didn't think that was going to bother me too much until... We sat down and we kept sitting and sitting and sitting and watching the screen and here's all the numbers and our number is so far down the list it doesn't even appear on the screen. It's like on page four and so for most of the time I don't even know where we're at on the list because it's deep in the, in the, there's tons of people and slowly I'm starting to, starting to get antsy. There's something in us, right, that no matter what it is we're waiting on, there's just that thing that begins to rise up like, this is not right. I shouldn't be here. There's about 10 other things I'd rather be doing and should be doing. Well, magnify that many times over when we're talking about things of eternal weight. Things that your life depends on now and forever. Now imagine God saying, I'm going to give that to you, but you're going to have to wait on it. David's got that experience. If you'll look with me at your outline, he does three things with that waiting here. And I want to talk you through these three. First of all, he expresses it in verses 81 to 82, which is very helpful to us to know how to express it ourselves. Secondly, he explains it. He explains why he has this longing in his heart. And then in verses 87 to 88, he encourages his own longing. He, he brings out reasons why he should not lose heart in the midst of his waiting, but instead should trust the Lord that no matter how long he waits, God will, in fact, come through. Now, first of all, how does he express his longing? Look again at verses 81 and 82, and I want to point out something about that word long. It appears twice there, and then it appears again. The same word appears again in verse 87. Now, you see long there in 81 and 82. Do you see the word long in verse 87? It's not there in English, at least not uh, translated as long. 
Although I'll tell you, it's the exact same word in Hebrew repeated in verse 87. Which of the words in 87 do you think is the word long? It tells you a lot about what waiting is like. Almost come to an end, yeah. Specifically, it's the word end. Uh, the word longing is, I am at my end. And isn't that what it feels like when you start getting antsy, when you're waiting on something, even if it's a small thing, but especially if it's something of very great magnitude in your life? When you're waiting on it, it feels like you're getting closer and closer and closer to a breaking point. Closer to the end. I cannot go on any longer. Now for David, in this case, it's not just waiting on a learner's permit for his son. It's waiting on God's salvation. Look at what he says, verse 81. I am at an end. My soul is at an end before your salvation. A salvation you promised me. Now he's not talking here about his eternal salvation. Uh, I think he's talking here about specific salvation from the trouble that has been ailing him, which is, in this case, a lot of enemies are persecuting him. That's what David is really talking about a lot in Psalm 119. I've got all these enemies. They're also the enemies of God because they hate God, and therefore they hate me, and they're giving me a devil of a hard time. Right? It's, it's crazy how much they are, are trying to squeeze the life of God out of me in various ways. And I'm sitting here waiting on God to come through and deliver me from them. And it just, weeks turn into months, turn into years. And here I still am, and here they still are. They're getting away with it, and I'm still under the gun. That's the salvation he's longing for. In verse 82, he says, his eyes are at an end. See, now his soul is at an end, and then his eyes are at an end. What does that suggest? My eyes are at an end. Do your eyes ever get tired? When do your eyes get tired? Five o'clock on Sunday night? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're staring a lot. Yeah. So for me, if I spend a lot of the day on a computer typing, at night I feel it, right? I feel my eyes, they almost, they don't hurt, but they're like sore. Do you ever feel that? Because it's just been consistently focused on one thing. And that seems to be what David is talking about. He's, he's put his hope in God's word. He's heard the promise. And he's not, kept, he's not gotten his eyes off that. His eyes have stayed fixed. Everybody else is against him. Everybody else is trying to get him to stop loving God and following God. And yet his eyes have stayed. But now he's waited so long, his eyes are starting to fail. He's at an end. God is, is making this man wait too long, at least it seems, to David. And kind of all of it is summed up by his great question in verse 82 at the end of the verse. Notice the first word of that question. When. When will you comfort me? And that's the problem. That, that, I think, is often the problem with us when we struggle to wait on God. It, it's not always so much that we are struggling with if God will comfort us or help us or save us. It's when. 
right? That's important. When, you're, when your legs are about to give out, it's always good to know why they're giving out, specifically. When anything in your body is giving out, it's always good to know why. What's behind the failure? What's behind it? It, You can't just say in general, I got some problems. We need to get you to the doctor and like diagnose exactly what is ailing, what is going wrong. And sometimes we, we as Christians are very loose comforters of each other. Because when someone presents with the symptoms that David's presenting with here to a pastor or to a fellow Christian and says, hey, I'm having a hard time. I feel like God is never answering my prayers. He's not coming through. Uh, I believe all these things about God, but I don't feel them in my life. I don't see them. We often jump to the conclusion, well, you're doubting God. You don't believe in God. Come on, man. Pick yourself up. Believe in the Lord and don't doubt him. Well, I grant you, sometimes that's true. Sometimes we do have a problem. We, we do wonder if God will come through sometimes. But it isn't always true that when we have a hard time waiting on God, it's an if question. Sometimes it's a when question. And, and a when question actually is not bad at all. It's the most natural thing in the world. If you're sure about the if, it's okay to ask the when. But if you're not sure about the if, the when doesn't even matter. And so if you feel like you're giving out and waiting on the Lord and you're coming to the end of your rope, wonder which one, start to think more deeply about your condition. Which one are you struggling with the most there? I mean, maybe it is that you need to refresh your heart with his word and learn more about God's character so that you won't doubt him. Because that's important. I mean, after all, we, we live in a culture that doubts him deeply. It's, just like, it's as if God doesn't even matter in the culture at large. And that's like acid to the faith of a Christian to be immersed in that every day. And so you need to draw from the deep wells of scripture to encourage your hearts about God but it may just be that that's not your issue it may be that you're just having the normal human reaction to a matter of timing and when it comes to relating to an internal God timing's always going to be an issue for temporal people isn't that right one writer puts it extremely well actually two writers let me let me give you two things Charles Spurgeon He says about David here, David doesn't have a a doubt about God. He is very clearly a man who knows that if help doesn't come from heaven, it will never come at all. Like when you read this section, you clearly get that idea. David's not trying to compare God to some other source of help. He knows God alone can help him. Then here's, here's what another writer says. His concern is timing and not event. Whereas, oftentimes, our concern can be about event and not timing. Let me give you an example. We often say words like this or phrases like this. I hope tomorrow will be better than today. 
I hope, that's, that's the way we use the word hope, don't we? I hope tomorrow will be better than today. Now, that, ev- that uh, phrase, what is certain and what is uncertain in that phrase? I hope tomorrow will be better than today. What's uncertain? That it will be better than today. What's certain? Tomorrow, right? You know, you know what I mean? Tomorrow is the certain thing. Like, I know tomorrow is going to come. What you're saying when you say that is, I know tomorrow is going to come, but I'm not sure, I hope, but I'm not sure it's going to be better. This writer says the Bible almost always uses hope the exact other way around. It's certain of the event, uncertain of the timing. For example, Jesus is coming again. That statement is different than I hope tomorrow is better than today. Because that statement is sure about an event to come that's been promised by God, but it is absolutely unsure and will remain unsure until it happens about the timing. And so don't you see, a struggle with timing does not mean that you are actually struggling with faith in God. It might just mean, well, you're not God. which isn't a bad thing. When will God do what he says he's going to do? Answer? When he's good and ready. (laughs) When he's good and ready. And I don't know when that is. What God has called me to do is maintain my faith in him, the event, even when the timing's in question. That's what it's like to wait on God. I wonder for you, are you waiting on God for something right now? Are you conscious of that, that you're waiting on God for something? I don't know what it is. You think about that. What are you waiting on God for that he has promised you in his word? Is it God that you're doubting or is it the timing? There's two different ways of treating it, depending on which one it is. And I think it's an encouragement to us to discover, you know, all along I've been beating myself up because I think I'm doubting God, but really I'm just struggling with my total lack of God's timing. And in that, I can comfort my heart and go to him and do like David, God, I long for you. When will it happen? All right, on to the second thing. Let's look at how David explains his longing. And you can see that in verses 83 to 86. Uh, David, in a few different ways, explains why he is where he is right now. And this is where we might not fully be able to relate to David, but I think it's still important for us to hear what he's saying on on its own terms so that we can try to apply it to ourselves as best we can. Uh, The first thing he says is he gives us a very vivid picture of what he feels like in his waiting. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Clear, right? (laughs) Uh, I I actually read that and was like, well, I don't know exactly what that means. When that happens and I'm reading the Bible and I don't know what it means, I'll usually go look it up. So I, you know, get out down all my 
commentaries on Psalm 119, lay them all out, and I look up verse 83. You know what they told me? They cleared it up for me. We don't know what this means. <laughs> Every one of them said, we're not exactly sure what this picture is. We just assume David and those who are first reading it must have known. It must have been some kind of idiom that they said, you know, like we say, raining cats and dogs. And they said, I feel like a wineskin in the smoke. We don't know. But, you know, I did a little more thinking and diving and, and I just give a speculation here. Uh, what is a wineskin, first of all? It's a bladder, yeah. It's a, made out of leather, a bladder, usually lined with something that you put wine in. It was one of the ways they bottled the wine back in the day in order to keep it uh, fresh while it continued to process and ferment and develop. Uh, they didn't use barrels and bottles. They used wineskins mostly. Uh, Jesus, remember, tells a story about wineskins when he says that new wine, when you get that, you shouldn't put it in the old wineskins from last year because they're all torn up from the wine being in there and you're going to put the new wine in there and it may burst them and you'll lose both the wine and the skins and nobody wants to lose the wine. That was Jesus' take on it. Um, a wineskin is a leather pouch or a leather bladder in which you put wine. What does smoke do to leather? Dries it out. What else? What's that? Hardens it. Yeah, yeah. If you can, you imagine that. Maybe you've never tried it. Probably haven't tried to put leather into a smoker, but it dries it. It causes it to become tougher. It causes it to turn colors. Gets blacker. Um, probably over time, I would imagine it begins to wear on the integrity of the material as it gets, you know, more and more warped by the smoke and by the heat. It may be less reliable to hold things. I don't know. I'm just speculating what he might mean. I think at the very least, he's describing something that's not to be seen as a good thing. What, what smoke does to leather is what my circumstances have begun to do to me. Dry me out. Make me tough. And not always in a good way. They begin to discolor me. I begin to act in ways that I don't really want to act, but I'm, I'm being put under so much strain and stress that it's really hurting me. If you think about it, no one, I mean, not just leather, but no one wants smoke in their face, right? Remember, you know, just put yourself around the campfire. Campfires are wonderful until, and this always happens. Everybody always says it happens to them in particular, but I think it just happens to all of us. When you sit at the fire without fail, the smoke starts to turn directions and it starts to hit you, <laughs> right? between the eyes. What happens when the smoke hits you? <sighs> you can't breathe. Uh, your eyes start to get watery and a little bit painful. It's not good to have smoke applied to something for a very long time. For David, his circumstance of suffering under, at the hands of others is like he's being subjected to smoke constantly in his life. 
It's wearing out his eyes. It's wearing out his soul. It's, it's making him harden. It's making him uh, discolored. And it's changing him as a person, but not in positive ways. And so he's impelled to call on God once again to do what he's promised to do to remedy his smoky situation. Now look at your Bible. Uh, after the wineskin stuff, in verses 84 through 86, what does he ask God to do? And then I'll get to the point. What does he ask God to do? Help. How does he want him to help, though? What was the specific things he's wanting? Bring judgment. Yes. How long must your servant endure? When will you, do you see that? When will you judge those who persecute me? He's being oppressed. He's being persecuted by other people. They're treating him terribly. And he's wondering, when is God going to intervene to put them out? They've been digging pits for him, and the picture there is of a, a hunter uh, pursuing his prey and digging false pits in the ground to trap the prey in, and they've been doing all this study to try to get David and bring him down. And yet, God, and yet David is wondering, when is God going to bring them down? The smoke in David's eyes, the smoke against his skin, is the mistreatment that he's experiencing from other people that they seem to be getting away with and so instead of just biding his time and wasting his waiting moments he's turning his waiting moments into praying moments where he instead of just pining over what God hasn't done yet he continues to ask God to do what he knows God and his character is committed to do in other words, he doesn't stop praying. And y'all, I'm going to tell you, this is why we have to learn to wait on God. We read earlier from Romans 5. That was the testimony of grace verses tonight. Where it says that suffering produces a few things. What does it produce? Endurance. And endurance is cool because endurance produces what? Character. And character produces hope. And so in moments where we feel like we're waiting on the Lord and God's not doing anything, and yet we're coming to God saying, win, 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 and we're struggling with the win, and we're trying to make sure we're not struggling with the if, and we're maintaining our faith in God, it is always a good thing to pray through those times because it's through prayer that God often begins to settle within our hearts those very character traits that he says suffering is meant to produce. Because let me tell you, and you know this, and I, don't have to, I really don't have to tell you, you know, suffering does not automatically produce endurance or character or hope. We could rewrite those verses and say, suffering sometimes, though, produces bitterness and anger and 
jealousy and envy and, I mean, despair and atheism. I mean, we could put it all on the table. Suffering can, in fact, produce poisonous things. What's the difference? One person learns how to talk it out in the presence of God while the other person doesn't. Bottles it up. One person speaks to God on the basis of God's own promise. The other person hardens his heart or her heart against the promise. Prayer actually is beautiful because it's a way to unburden the heart when the heart is burdened. Have you experienced that? Maybe you started praying and you didn't really want to pray. But you started praying. And you had to persist a little while, but you persisted a little while and kept praying, kept speaking to the Lord about your, your, your problem, kept speaking to him about his promises and character. And what eventually happens? You've had a great time praying. Am I, I'm not alone, right? You, you've had a great, you didn't want to, but you started and you had a great time. And by the end, you feel relieved, massively relieved. Well, we could take an atheistic point of view and say, well, that's just psychological and all these things. But I don't think so. I think, well, that, that is the atheistic point of view. But if there's a God, let me tell you, that's not just psychological. God says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. And when you cast your cares on me, guess what? They're on me. You don't have to carry them anymore. And so David tells God what he's going through while at the same time asking God to do what he knows God will do and can do. He just doesn't know when. Even when we don't know the when, pray the if. Apply the if to the circumstance in your prayers. Get creative in your praying by claiming the promises of God as they apply to the circumstances of your life. It'll do your heart good. It's like medicine. It's the best way to fill your waiting hours. While I was sitting there in the DMV, I forgot to bring a book in. That's, where I, that's what I always bring when I'm waiting. Y'all know me. And I didn't because I thought I had an appointment. And I thought that meant I wouldn't have to wait. Well, I was disappointed very quickly. Because I, I didn't have any way, I didn't feel to redeem the time. I started talking to Asher a little bit, and that was great. But Asher had his phone. And so he wasn't fully interested in talking back too much. So I just sat there. Unredeeming my time. Prayer is the best way often to redeem our waiting hours. David models it. Jesus modeled it. Jesus did this. And when we do it, I think we'll find it to be a medicine to the soul. Let's look at the last thing tonight. Just for, for a, a bit of time here. Uh, David uh, encourages his own longing in verses 87 to 88, the very end of the section. They have almost made an end of me on earth, he says. 
but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. One of the reasons why we have a hard time worrying, we've already said this, is that we think there's other places we would rather be. There's better things that we could be doing, whether work or rest or play or whatever it is. What I'm doing right now, sitting here, is not anywhere near what I could be or should be doing. And so we get frustrated, angry, and upset. When we are called on God to wait on him and to suffer in our lives, waiting on his promise, it's the same thing. The reason why we begin to lose patience with the timing is we feel like there's a lot of other places we should be or could be that would be better for us. And yeah, in, in, in the sense that we could be in heaven, yeah, of course, it could be better for us. But in an earthly sense, what David is saying in these last verses is, there is no better place for me to be than where God has me. That's my paraphrase of those two verses. Notice how he says, he uses that word end again. He'd begun with that. My soul is at an end. My eyes are at an end. I'm about to die here. But then he comes back around in verse 87 and says something slightly different. How's it different in that verse? They almost made an end of me. Almost. Not quite, but almost. Isn't that cool? He starts the section saying, it's done. I've ended. No more eyes. No more soul. No more patience to wait. And he comes around by the end to encourage his heart. But wait a minute. I'm still talking to God. And he's still talking to me. Turns out, I thought they had made an end of me. But really, it's just they almost made an end of me. God has kept them back from making a full end of me. And here I am living to tell the tale, living to cast my burdens on God. In fact, it's his steadfast love, verse 88, his hesed love, his covenant keeping, that's going to once again revive me and give me life. I'm going to come out of this at some point. I don't know when, but I know I will because I know his steadfast love proves it to me. It makes it a certainty to me. In the meantime... Almost, you almost got me close, but not quite. Isn't that good to be able to tell your circumstances that? Or to tell that about your circumstances? Or about the things within you that you're tired of dealing with? Sometimes it's not outside things, it's inside things. Sometimes we just get tired of ourselves. Isn't that right? I just wish I was different. I wish I'd, I was changing quicker. Isn't it good to be able to say, you know, I'm almost lost, but not quite. 
God, an unseen hand, is holding back what I felt at first was inevitable. And now I know after unburdening my heart, it's anything but inevitable. I'm still alive, baby. <laughs> because God has me in his hands. Even in this period, and nothing has happened in verse 87 and 88 to end his waiting. He hasn't finished waiting yet. He's still waiting. He just said, help me, in verse 86. The only difference is now he recognizes that even the waiting is not a wasted period of his life. The waiting period is a God-ordained period to bless him, to teach him. And because it's God-ordained, God's going to make sure that that does not end poorly for him. I'm reminded, uh, by reading that verse, I'm reminded of the great verse, Romans 8, 28. Y'all know that verse? Oh, how I love that verse. Romans 8, 28. Do you know it? All things work together for the good of them who are called according to his purpose. All things. I love that verse. It doesn't tell me that all things are good. It tells me that God will work things out for good. Because he's called me and because he's committed to me by his Hesed love. Not all things will be good. There will be, uh, there will be very deep sorrow sometimes in the waiting. There will be frustration in the waiting. There will be confusion in the waiting. I will not know when, 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 why, 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 why. I won't know it. But in the waiting, I learn something about God that I couldn't learn any other place. That he's the worker of all things for good to them who love him, who are called according to his purpose. The Bible says even Jesus as a human being had to learn obedience in this way. The same procedure. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It's what it says in Hebrews chapter 5. If it was true of Jesus, it's true of me. There are things I can't learn except God put me in a place of waiting, in a place of longing, a place of unfulfilled promises. And it's there that I come to see that God is trustworthy in all cases, in all conditions, in all circumstances. That's where the endurance and the character and the hope really start to get formed in me because it's in the waiting that I learn about the love of God that has been poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit. A God who cares for me in trouble. A God who shields me from ultimate, my ultimate demise and I can stand at the end of any circumstance and say, it almost got me but not quite because God kept me in the midst of it. Uh, this week I've been having a great time reading the book of Job, which is hard to say. Most years when I get to Job, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of like, whew, this is going to be a long, sad journey again. He says a lot of things in there that are just really hard and sad and 
Plus, it's hard to know what's true and not true because in the end, God shows up and says, all y'all don't know what you're talking about. And so you wonder, why have I been reading all this then for this long? I mean, that's the way Job is. That's the way Job is. It's, hard, it's a hard book to interpret for those reasons. But this year, it just has hit me different. And this week in chapter 19, I don't know if you've been reading along with our, our Bible reading, but you've read this too if you, you are. In chapter 19, Job is trying to get his knuckle-headed friends to stop telling him he's a terrible sinner. Um, Job knows he's a sinner, by the way. I mean, he's, he never says he's not. He just doesn't think he's a sinner like they say he's a sinner. And he doesn't think all this has happened because God is trying to smite him, which Job's right, by the way. And Job knows, God knows the answer. He never doubts that. He just doesn't know what God knows. And so he's like desperately longing to hear God's perspective and he can't hear it. And his friends just keep saying, Job, just face up to it. You must be the worst person on earth. And Job says no. And there's that place in chapter 19 where he said, I love this. He says, oh, would that my words could be written in a book. Always makes me smile to read that line. Oh, that I had a pen of iron, he says, to write these words down, to take it, take it with lead and put it in a rock so that it will never get erased. Because brothers, talking to his friends, brothers, I know something. Here's what he says. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the latter day, he shall stand upon the earth. And after I am dead and the worms eat my body in my flesh, I shall see God. And he'll give me his answer. That impressed me this week. For a lot of reasons. Number one, isn't it cool that Job, 2,000 years before Christ, saw Christ? Because who else could he be talking about? The Redeemer who lives. Who else? Could he be talking about but the one who, who will raise him from the dead one day so he'll see him face to face? He's he saw Jesus and he believed it. But here's the other reason I was impressed. The only way Job could speak those things so beautifully and so truly from his heart, the only reason they're written down for us to read them is because Job had some bad days. Job had some things he knew were true, but he couldn't see. He couldn't see when and why and whew. He had his wife telling him one thing and his buddies telling him another, and none of it was good. And yet there's Job sitting in the ashes. Boils on his body. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job says, There's a lot of things I don't know, but I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand upon the earth, and I will see him. What David is saying in verses 87 and 88 is something like that. 
in my waiting, I'm exactly where God wants me to be. Because it turns out, life is all about knowing and seeing God. And there's no really better vantage point from which to know him and to see him than the moment of suffering and desperate waiting. If that's true, time spent wasting on God is never wasted time. You can see. Wow. There I was in the DMV. No book in sight. My number was not showing up on the screen. People were getting angry all around me. I'm trying not to get angry with them. I'm thinking of all the things I could be doing right now. I'm getting fidgety. And I sat there and I remembered Job. And I remembered how fidgety he must have gotten and how fidgety David must have gotten. And yet both of them learned, hard lesson, but they learned. This is the best place for me. This is exactly where God wants me to be. God is never late. He's never early. He never gets the address wrong. He's exactly on time and on place in my life. And I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see God. Amen.